0: Ladies and gentlemen, as part of the Jeremiah Show, it's radio with TV's Tim Stack. Now here's the host of the show, a man Yay, who could have sued me. Laverne and Shirley star Penny Marshall five. for it's sexual harassment, but didn't. It's TV's Tim Stack. But i, a different, oh, Tim Stack. I a different Hollywood story, my Jay Leno story, but I'll tell the Penny Marshall story instead. Barry, my guest, well, I'm going to introduce you. Have you ever heard my Penny Marshall story? I, I have. Yeah, okay, it's my go-to story. I tell I'll stop people at airports and tell this story. Um, so I was doing my Penny Marshall story, who was very nice. She was very nice. She was very much like Laverne, you know. And and I also am friendly with Cindy Williams, and and you can see why they were different characters, and they were both wildly talented. Anyway, I happened to work the episode, the first episode where Cindy was not on Laverne and Shirley. And again, I love Cindy Williams. She's a great person, but there was a lot of bad chemistry on that set. So the crew and the cat, they were thrilled that one of the two leads was not on the set that week. But the episode was about Laverne brings in Lorraine Newman as a bank robber, uh, like a Patty Hearst character. And I'm the bank teller. It's like something like, like if it was today, I could sue for sexual harassment because every time Penny Marshall would hand me a bank note, you know, like a stick em up note, it was a, different drawing of a different male member i'm going to say the penis word oh boy it was a different drawing like and each one had its own like animation to it and she would hand me the and i'm trying to be an actor and trying to be serious like memorize my lines and she keeps handing me these notes with different draw and we must have done 18 takes at each one, like if I was really somebody, I should have saved them. I should have had her autograph them. I anyway, I could go to court and make a lot of money. I so. want you haven't introduced me yet, but I I watched her
1: direct on the set of Big. Oh yeah, because uh, my friend Barry Sonnenfeld, was, was the it? cinematographer on it, and uh, I got on the set and the actors would do the thing and go like, yeah, and do it again, <laughs> and you'd look and again it would happen. One more. Where is she? She was under a pile of blankets in a corner directing.
0: Directing from
1: the blanket, Smoking cigarette from under the blankets. Yes. And it was just her directing was, eh, again, I guess. I don't know. I don't care. A- <laughs> what time is lunch?
0: What are we having? Uh, but she's a very nice person. Yeah. Very nice person. Was. Okay. Now, you've heard this voice. I'm going to introduce you. Uh, and here's a little hint. From maybe the work you're most famous for, but there's a lot of famous work. But here's a little hint of what my guest Barry Finero is most famous for.
1: Thank you for being a friend. Travel down the road and back again. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. Guest Barry Finero and Golden Girls. By the way, this is a good time for me to say, I think. Thank you b- for being my friend. Thank yeah. you for being my Thank friend. You. We're
0: going to talk about that because Barry and I have known each other for f- oh my God. 42 years. That's a That's- crazy number. And we're going to talk about that. Um, I just want to get introduced. This was the voiceover. I, he, this is my intro for Barry. He's a two-time Emmy winner for Gold. Correct me if anything's wrong. Like Rachel Maddow always says, correct me. So he's a two-time Emmy winner Trump for Gold. Trump is not Group. in jail yet. <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. Oh. <laughs> Two-time Emmy winner for Golden Girls, wrote on the TV show Benson, I remember that, through a groundling connection, which we'll talk about. Uh, He wrote the movies Men in Black 2, The Crew, Big Trouble, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, and the classic, I mean classic, and I know this, having pulled clips this week for this interview, watching it again, is Kingpin, which is absolutely one of the easily like top 20 laugh out loud movies, I think. Thank you. And it's on a lot of people's lists. It is. People write Kingpin. You know, a lot like. of people in prison. <laughs> well, they have lists. Um, right next to the numbers, they, they how many days left they have in prison, they write I'm, I'm Kingpin. I'm huge.
1: Uh, fraternities and prisoners yeah. are big fans
0: of Kingpin. Um, didn't you tell me, Joe, your son went to college, and when they found out his dad wrote Kingpin, they Please lost Please, come in. <laughs> Join the frat. Your father's a genius. Uh, all those credits, and one episode of Archie Bunker's Place. I yeah, did do that. Which we're not going to talk about. <laughs> yep, I did. That was
1: 45 years ago. I don't know. No, that was...
0: So, we're entering our 42nd year of friendship, Mr. Barry Finero Give him a Thank round you. of applause. Thank you. You've been a good friend. We um we met at the Groundlings in 1980. 80. Yes. Right. And how how did you find the Groundlings? I had uh, graduated from
1: film school, NYU graduate film school, and I came out to Hollywood with my film that I made that had won all these awards, and I got to Hollywood and no one cared.
0: (laughs) Nobody cared about the award-winning film. Absolutely, nobody
1: cared. So, And then I I used the tried-and-true method to get my first shot in Hollywood. I bugged famous directors. I would break into their offices or deliver pizzas, and I found out that... Once you're a director, you're looking for your next job. Right. So you're not really out to help me.
0: Right, out of film school, yeah. award-winning film. So
1: I put the film on a shelf, and I started writing scripts. Right. And I had a friend, Mort Nathan, who had uh, come out before me. And we started writing TV shows. Somebody told us the way to break in was write spec TV scripts. So we wrote, a, we wrote those, and uh, we couldn't get them to anybody because, you know... It, it's also the thing about you have to have an agent to get a job you need a job to get an agent Hollywood is loaded with Catch-22 yeah so we couldn't figure that out for a little while so I went to the Groundlings one night And and how did you find them I think it was just like in the L.A. Weekly. Yeah, I Um, saw an article in the L.A. Weekly, and I went. Yeah, and sitting there, I said to myself, I can do this. I think I can do this because, you know, I'd always been sort of funny, and I was in plays and did all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, tried out and did the uh, uh, school, and uh, that's how it happened. Right.
0: And so Barry and I met. There was a director at the Groundlings, Tom Maxwell, who went on to have a sitcom career, wrote on Just Shoot Me and a bunch of other shows. And and he, you know, he would say to me, he was not like your typical comedian because he was from North Carolina. He was more like a character on Mayberry. Yeah. And he would say to me, like every, you know, well, we got a new guy for golf. <laughs> we got him coming this Monday for golf. Golf. <laughs> <laughs> Two syllables in that word. Um, anyway, that's how Barry and I. Met and then, you know, we're going through the groundlings together. And but Barry was a writer, which was different. The rest of us wanted to be actors. Yeah. And I didn't come to that logical conclusion till later. I wish I had come to it. But but you always sort of approached it differently.
1: Yeah, I was not there, to, as you said, to be an actor. I, I I thought of it as a place for people to see my writing. Gotcha. You know? And uh, so, uh, which made me maybe the most popular guy in the Groundlings because I was never vying for time on stage and there was never that competitive thing with me. I just wanted to write stuff. And in fact, I was nauseous before I had to go on, but <laughs> it was, it was fun. You know, it was fun, but th- you know, there were other people there who were a little bit better than me. Phil Hartman, you, you know, people at John Lovitz, there were people that were a little bit better than me, but it was never, it was never something I wanted to do. I went and got a headshot lunch, which seems so weird, Yeah, but, but I never went to audition or anything. So anyway, and being in the Groundlings, not only did it lead me to get my first job, or one of my first jobs, it also taught me a lot about comedy and writing. You know, I, I think it's a great uh, school in a way to, for for would be comedy writers to do that because you learn. You learn quickly what doesn't work right? Uh, because you fail miserably on stage. Right. So you have a sense of what's what's funny and timing and all that. And also, you, eventually, you're going to be in a writer's room or you're going to be pitching. And that's acting. That yes. is really an acting job. You have to sell it, but you have to sell it by acting it out. Hey, this story is about a guy, blah, 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 blah. And groundlings teaches you how to do that because you have to uh, be good on your feet
0: right later on i'm going to cut to a different part i was going to talk about this later but barry is responsible for me becoming a full-time writer and when i got to be a full-time writer Again, what you're saying was because of the groundlings, it was not hard. It was like you're pitching jokes, and, and if it doesn't work, it's like, who cares? Yeah, I've been next. there before.
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Who yeah. cares?
0: Next. Well, no, no, next and move on. I'll quickly tell the story. Barry got me to be a full-time writer. I had just finished a, a series on Fox, Parker Lewis Can't Lose, and Barry called and said, hey, we're doing this show, Pacific Station, and there's an idiot cop. We We, we want you for the part. You came immediately to mind. (laughs) Idiot, whatever it is. (laughs) Tim Stack would be great in this. As a cop? (laughs) He's a cop. um, So I said, that sounds great. I don't even need to read the script. It's Barry and Mort. It's Pacific Station, idiot cop. Great, let's do it. And he literally calls me 10 minutes later and says, "Uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but um, the network, we won't say who was running NBC at the time said or uh little <laughs> i didn't say it <laughs> said uh apparently you are old news whoa
1: do you remember this this is a good thing about being older i have no recollection
0: i mean well, I it's remember one of the greatest stations. calls i ever got because it gave me the impetus to go start this writing career i also had two kids and it's like I gotta pay a mortgage. I have to pay bills. I if I if I'm old news at one network, I'm old news everywhere. And so I quickly wrote a spec Seinfeld and I got it to Dave Ucline and I got on that show on our own and found the process really fun and easy. And anyway, that's because you were but the guy you friend. talked
1: about, Maxwell, Tom Maxwell, who was the director of the Growlings, I, I was after him for years. He's a very, he was a very funny guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was just the director of the small theater group. Right. And uh, he was getting married and needed money. I said, why, why aren't you writing? You should be writing. Ah, I don't want to do that. So anyway, I, I, I think I gave him his first job writing you and then did. he went on and had a nice career. Um yeah it's um uh, it's another way to go
0: and but also i think there was a uh, correct me if i'm wrong if there was a little payback there because rob dames who had been in the groundlings and had left to become a writer and wrote on benson mm-hmm. wasn't that sort of your first staff job
1: Yeah, it was. And it was through the Groundlings. It was Tom knew him and uh, I sold uh, Archie Bunker. And then that was enough for him to call Rob. Hey, give him a try. Got to try. You know, we got our foot in the door. We had been auditioning for that spot for years. So when the time came, we were able to step up and do it. Right. so, uh, and then once we got in the door, no one was going to get us out. You know, we were the ones that we worked weekends. We worked,
0: you know. You did. It w- Barry's golf life disappeared. We would play golf on a weekend. Yeah. Now Barry's working this weekend. And I remember Tom and I saying, like, wow, man, I'm glad I'm never going to be a writer. <laughs> Boy, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. But you have was to work working be... weekends, but you did it.
1: Yeah. I think, I th- which gets me to this idea too. I think show business, you have to be. Kind of O C D, yeah. don't you think? Yeah. You have to be obsessed with this idea that if I don't do this my life is over in a way, because there are plenty of people behind you they that are feel lined that up. way. And you have you know, it it takes every moment of your time. But it's in a way it's not like work. It's it's the thing you're passionate about. You've been involved with it for years in one way or another. And finally when you get your chance it's like oh,
0: Yeah, and on I'm a, here. on the half hour side, you're genuinely in a generally in a room. With a lot of funny people. Oh, yeah. You the know, funniest if, people. In if the world. they're not funny, that means that they could be problematic because they'll stir up trouble because they know they're not funny. That's a whole other discussion. But
1: comedians um, in general are very smart. You yes. know, forget about being funny. You're hanging around with very smart people, right. very funny people, people in the know. They know what's going on. So, you know, that's that's a really uh, uh, intoxicating environment to be a yeah. part of. Really fun.
0: Yeah. It's, really it's fun. why I still do it, And you know, like because it's fun it's like it's it's fun so anyway we are going to try to get to the golden girls at some point we've only got two minutes left in this segment um we talked about that i i do want to just end on the golden girls and then we'll pick it up on the other side it's insane the popularity of that show it runs on a channel you can always find golden girls on some channel 24 hours a day. And that's not even including the streaming, whatever it's on. Hulu, I'm sure it's on Hulu because it's Disney owned and yeah, it's
1: it's it's crazy. It's it's uh you know back in the day when we were doing it, we knew, you know, we knew that we were in a top 10 show or number one More show. More than was- top 10.
0: It would get a over 50% share on a Saturday night. Yeah.
1: Well, I was, I'll tell you a story about that. I, you know, you, listen, you, you write the show in a room like we're in right now. You know, your whole life is here with people writing, and you're not really thinking beyond. What you have to do that week write a show and make b arthur and betty happy and make it make it funny and all that anyway we go to new york we, we had done the show for a year we were in new york for some reason the group of us four of us who ran the show and we were walking somewhere in the 60s on the west side on a saturday night we weren't even thinking about it. we were there for some meetings or something and we heard laughter it was you know quiet streets up on the West side yeah and uh, it's louder louder we look up and we see television lights flickering in the windows right and most of them are lit up and they're on the same channel and we realize it's the golden girls and we go like
0: multiple that's a great scene
1: holy god it is popular it really is i mean we knew it
0: but right no because you knew the, the ratings wet- but to witness it first To witness it was really kind of wild that's great that's great well i just watched i think six episodes on a flight back It was on Hallmark Channel. I just kept watching, and I knew you were coming on, but also it's just so funny. I can't
1: watch them. I can only think of, like, what we ate that
0: week when I see (laughs) them. Like, you know, oh, yeah, we went to. And having worked for Barry, he's not afraid to order from a good restaurant. We did do that. Yeah, we did do that. Uh, Okay, we're going to take a quick break. It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. We'll come back with my guest, Barry Finero right after this.
1: Hey, this is Barry Finero, Emmy Award-winning writer who's just written something for Netflix that they don't want. Here to promote Tim Stack's show, it's radio with TV's Tim Stack. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down the road and back again.
0: I feel hot.
1: I feel Uh cold.
0: I feel guilty. (laughs) This is
1: all my fault. Oh, no, Rose. It's all my fault. The minute I found out you were contagious, I should have thrown you out on the street. (laughs) I said I was sorry. Oh, I feel just terrible. My eyes are all puffy. My nose is red. My glands are swollen.
0: Isn't it amazing how I can feel so bad and still look so good? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> very good. Very good. Just one of the many clips you can. Oh, my God. YouTube and Golden Girls clips. So um, I want to I want you to tell the I have a B. Arthur story to tell having been a guest star on that show. But I want you to tell the B. Arthur story about the very first table read for Golden Girls.
1: Yeah, I don't want to give too much of the backstory here. It's sort of complicated. But anyway, uh, Susan Harris wrote the pilot for the show. And a part of the deal was she had done soap. And she wrote every episode of soap. And she had made herself sick doing it, which is easy to do. If yeah, you're that sure. compulsive about it. So anyway, when she... Uh, it's too complicated to get into how she wrote it. But she, she, the the deal was I'll write the pilot, but then I don't want to have a thing to do with the show. Uh, I'm not going to come for tapings. I'm not going to come for rewrites. I'm not going to write any episodes she wrote a couple but she was gone and she was yeah so anyway they we had worked for with thomas harris and susan knew our work and they offered us to do the show so anyway we go and write you know however many episodes it was until that first table reading five or so we worked a couple of months and here's the weird thing the women were brought back to tv with the understanding that susan harris the great susan harris was going to be doing golden girls right
0: and uh, Tony because two of them had come from Maud, yes and Betty White from the Mary Tyler Moore show and Estelle Getty was a Broadway actress yes but they, so, they, they all knew Susan yeah and they're all expecting Susan to run yeah. the show and, uh, and how old are you at this time 20 I'm trying 28 or 29 yeah
1: 28 I was 28 <laughs> that's and, insane so Mort and Mort and I showed up for the first table reading in the same Ralph Lauren colored shirt so we look like
0: part of a glee club from <laughs> like, high school like you called the night before to plan your outfit yeah we had uniforms on
1: (laughs) that's not good
0: either and you're both young and you're wearing the same
1: clothing yeah and we and i at 28 i looked 14 i really did (laughs) so uh we walk in and here's the genius of tony thomas and paul witt who had done soap and other shows it was don't make a problem unless you have a problem their problem was they had no susan harris um They had us. They had given us the show to do. So uh, we all sit down at the table, and we had never been introduced to the women. They had just done the pilot. Now they're ready to do the series. Um, so we all sit down, and we have placards in front of us, you know, Morton Nathan, writer. Yeah. Very So we sit down, and uh, Paul goes, okay, well, welcome, everybody. All the network suits are up in the audience. Everybody looking <laughs> right.
0: very grim. Right, and you got big stars in the cast, so they're all coming out for this table read. Yeah, it was
1: packed, because they they thought they had a hit right. on their yeah. hands, you know. And, uh, and, and there was Brandon a, Tartikoff, right? Brandon Tartikoff, yeah. yeah. He knows a hit when he sees Yeah. And there is B. Arthur, who is really intimidating. Yeah. And I was, you know, just a pure fan of hers. I loved her from Maude, and I'd seen her on Broadway when I was a kid and stuff. It was crazy to be sitting, and I was sitting directly across from her. (laughs) So anyway, we, so it's okay. Well, let's read, and uh, the first script, Barry Fenero and Morton Nathan have written it, and let's get into it. And B goes, (laughs) just a minute. (laughs) Let me ask a question. Where is the effing white hair And she's staring right at me, meaning, where are people, where's Norman Lear, where's Woody Allen, where's Neil Simon. Where's Susan
0: Harris, who's also older.
1: Yeah, Susan Harris. But all the people that she had normally worked with, people her own age. Right. And it was like, it's them. And she went into a dark funk. Really, it just, the whole mood you could hear. And I think I whispered to more, I said, we're gone. <laughs> we're fired. We're, we're done. So it was just one of those happy Hollywood stories. They read the script, and it was it was really good.
0: Yes. I can't
1: imagine. It was, in fact, it won the Writer's Guild Award that year. And at the end of it, be closed the script, and she stood up, and right to our faces went like that. Yeah. And then everybody else did the same thing. And it was Hollywood moment because had it been a mediocre script which happens and you fix it during the yeah. week had it been mediocre you would be gone, gone. So it was just it was just a lucky thing. And after that, that was the best show I ever worked on. We had the best relationship with the actors. They trusted us. There was never a fight, never crosswords, never. Belie- I saw Burt Reynolds choke a director, so I know the difference <laughs> between <laughs> between that and uh, the, the other side of Hollywood. I liked Burt Reynolds, too. But anyway, yeah, so we, we, we sort of had their trust right then, and it was— It never left. And we always, we'd work our butts off because we knew we owed it to them. They were really good and professional, and you did your best for them. Yeah.
0: And I just did. It was a two-episode guest star thing where I played a secret service guy on the show. Barry had left the show, sadly. By then, he had gone off to an overall deal at Disney. But uh, my B. Arthur story was: I come on the set, and they—it was a, a wraparound show, like a clip show, where they show rerun. They show clips from. It's a way for them, Paul and Tony, to make more money. Yes, is uh, they show clips and they'll shoot ep- little tiny scenes and they'll use that to wrap around the clips and it's all flashbacks and all. All that so for I was there for two different days. Like we did it all in a day, and was kind of fun. One of the episodes Jerry Orbach was on, so yep. that was cool talking yep. to him. But my first day on the set, I'm standing there, and this AD, assistant director, who I'd worked with before on Benson, he comes up. He's I, I feel somebody staring at me, and I'm looking around, looking around, and it's B. Arthur staring at me. And as you said, it's wildly intimidating. She's so. Good and that voice and she's and at this point this show is a behemoth hit, and I look back and she's just, finally the assistant director comes up to me and he goes, Tim, do you want to know why uh, B is staring at you? Uh, yeah, what's what's going on? He said you're chewing gum. Oh yeah, and so I, and I was far off the set, far from them rehearsing, but it was, I guess it was loud enough, which says oh, something, no, no. says That's- something about my teeth, so. I quietly just put out the gum, and I throw it out, and I come back to the set, and literally like three minutes later, B comes up to me, hello, Tim, I'm (laughs) B. Arthur. I've heard so much about you. You're at the Groundlings. Apparently, you're very funny, and welcome to the show. And and it went fantastic.
1: That's classic. But but
0: those women were so professional and so... Like, we we know we're big stars, but it never felt like it was going to their heads. No. And, and I don't know if they got along or didn't get along. You would have never known that on the set.
1: They really did get along. It was just, you know, the stories came out later that B and Betty... Uh, did not get along because they were two. They had two different approaches. B came from Broadway, where you know your lines, you hit your mark, you do the show, you get your martini, and you go home. That's what. That's the way it works. And uh, and Betty, you know, she had done everything: commercials, game shows. She she would do anything. She just liked to be out there in the lights. So what happened that started rubbing B the wrong way is uh, somebody would go up on the line and. Uh, Betty would get up from the set and walk to the audience and get like, well, that wasn't my fault. You know, I knew my lines. Right. Just to entertain. And they would roar because an yeah. audience loves it when a, when a cast member breaks character and comes out. And, and you would see be like rolling her eyes and stuff. So, you know, there was always sort of that little bit of tension. But... Maybe once, twice, there was an argument. I never saw any of that. That, It was so professional. I I think I told you this like a while ago. Uh, Estelle Getty had trouble with lines. She later died of an Alzheimer's disease. I right. But anyway, so I think that was the beginning of you know that showed up with her not being able to remember lines, and it you know it was me who came up with this idea that she would tell these long stories. Picture it, Sicily, nineteen forty-one, a little girl, <laughs> and it was a page, a di- and we'd get to it, and I'd look at her, and, she'd, oh my God. and I would go down during the week, and I'd run lines with her. I said, it doesn't matter if we can get it in pieces after the audience leaves. They love these stories that you. Tell Oh yeah, my they are God! So funny. And she she dreaded it, but she would stumble through that. Had, had she not, that would have been we it would have been shot in a half hour, right? Because the other people were, and that's and that frustrated Estelle more too, because she was trying to keep up in a way. She wanted to be as professional. Yeah, sure. And she was professional, and she'd
0: she had been on Broadway. She won a Tony in yeah, Broadway, so yeah, it's yeah. not like she didn't know how to memorize lines. Yeah, she was. In fact, she was great in that show, tr- Torch Song Trilogy. She was. Fantastic. So I didn't even have this on my notes to ask you, but when you said uh, you whispered to Mort, we're gone, I'm remembering the Emmys when you won the Emmy and you told me that Mort whispered to you, I think we're going to win. Like you did not expect that at all to win the Emmy. And neither did Susan Harris. Right, she expected to win for the pilot, Yeah. and you guys won for the script that you're talking about.
1: Uh, yeah, it was a different script. Oh, it was, it was a the different little person script. script of, okay, you know, anyway,
0: and I believe Milton Berle was your presenter. Was and did? Yeah, and he he
1: uh, he said, and the winner for the Emmy is Barney. Barney Finero.
0: Barney Finero. So I
1: had to go up and I go like, my mom's watching and it's Barry because I know <laughs> she'll be upset. It. Yeah. It uh, was a sur- that was a
0: surreal. And then you told me you went off stage and the first thing, it's sort of dark. You're these bright lights and you're walking on stage and it's dark. And all you knew was that somehow your head was between Linda Evans breasts <laughs> yes she came
1: up and gave me a hug and she I gave you a hug and, like, and somehow oh, your head goes I right love in there Hollywood <laughs> I love it. Also, a weird Milton Berle story is, so he presented his award, and it's, you know, the whole thing is surreal. You look out, and there's, you know, just a million people in tuxedos, and everybody's beautiful. Yeah. Like, now I'm talking. It's just so weird. And they take you off, and you go behind. You get Linda Evans to rub her bosom on you. (laughs) That's part of the award. And then you go go out of the auditorium outside, and you walk along, and then they take you into the back where they do interviews. Right. The proper press is there. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so we're with Uncle Milty, yes. who is in white kabuki makeup for some reason. It was very odd. I still have the pictures at home. It's like, how was that all about? And uh, so we walk outside, and there were a bunch of kids outside. Yeah, hell, oh, can we have your autograph? Can They don't even know you know anybody. Right. Who- we're holding a statue, and Milton Berle. I can't even say it because we're on radio, general radio. Can't talk about it <laughs> screaming at the kids and they run off because this guy's screaming who looks like Dracula and uh, and he turns to us and he goes you guys are big shots now that's how you treat people oh
0: that's a nice story <laughs> Uncle Miltie thank you I think uh, he was
1: making a joke but anyway we kind of became friends with him after that he would invite us to the Friars Club and stuff which was a kick you know uh,
0: okay time for another break on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack my guest is Barry Finero. We're gonna come back and talk about his movie career right after this. No! There's gotta be some way I can work this off, no! some way I can make it up no, to you. No, 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 no!
1: Hello, darkness, my old friend.
0: I've come <laughs> to talk with you again. <laughs>
1: because the vision so oh, stop it, you, it wasn't that bad. Left its seeds while I oh, my little Roy toy and the vision What is it about good sex today? that makes me have to crap?
0: there you go (laughs) can we use that clip we'll find out later Uh, thank you for being fans (laughs) (laughs) oh that script makes me laugh um that movie makes me laugh so i want to talk about kingpin and how we got into that but i want to go back a little bit further and you grew up in maybe because i'm a baseball fan you grew up in a very interesting town so why don't you tell people where you grew up?
1: Yeah, we, I, I was born in New York, and my father hated it there, and, want, and uh, he wanted to get away from um, my mother's parents, like we all did, <laughs> who were very dark <laughs> Russians, who said stuff like, I remember the Cossacks coming <laughs> through our village and burning down, and Literally.
0: And that so, was a good day.
1: <laughs> so, uh, anyway, he had been in uh, Vero Beach, Florida, because some friends of his, and so he built a home there. So we moved to Vero Beach when I was very young.
0: What did a what house in Vero Beach cost? I, I like remember, the,
1: yeah,
0: $12,000. $12,000 $12, for a home in Vero Beach, yeah, $12, 000, Florida. $12,000, and near the beach. Yeah. Because you didn't want to be
1: on the beach because there were too many insects. So okay. a lot of people did not like in the 60s to be near the beach. Anyway, so, you know, I grew up on a dirt road. We had one bathroom. But I had I had great parents. So They were great parents. Yeah. Uh, so I, I didn't even know how poor we are. But it was unbelievable. It was a very innocent time. And we lived on a dirt road and near the beach. And we went surfing. And, you know, it was, um, you know, it's... I don't know. It was it was a very blessed uh, childhood that I had. Uh, so anyway, but Vero Beach is known for nothing except for, for uh, grapefruit, yes. Indian River grapefruit, ruby reds and they don't have it anymore you know it's all wiped out hurricanes and stuff the grapefruit sorry mm-hmm. about nor that. do they have the dodgers and they don't have the dodgers the other thing they were famous for so living next door to us was danny ozark who was coach of the dodgers right and he became my brother's godfather my father's best friend his wife jenny became my mother's great friend so we our whole childhood was dodger 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 they would have barbecues at the house and they'd have a little pool there and there was don Dreisel and the Sa- sandy koufax and maury wilson and, all that. and i mean even even as a kid i knew not everybody got to do that but i right. didn't know how weird it was and special it was to be hanging out with these guys so um yeah that was a lot it was a lot of fun and that was part of the fabric of the city you know when spring came the dodgers came to town and it was a whole different vibe people came in to see the games and all that and it was as i said a different time they would play a game and they would go off to the locker room and you'd walk with them right Hey Sandy how hey, You know, to to it's think just about so that crazy. Day, yeah. I looked it up last night in fuck uh, Sandy Koufax signed he'd been playing for a while and it was big news. He signed a 2-year contract for 70 grand. Wow, $35,000 a
0: year. Yeah. He would make he would be more than Max Scherzer now, who makes 43 million a year. Yeah.
1: And he and Don Drysdale did a contract Right, they together. held out. They held out and did a contract together. And I think it was combined two hundred grand for two years. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah.
0: So um but I, I also think, you know, having grown up in Doylestown, Pennsylvania, which was a we had roads, but it was still like a small town. Yeah. Uh, but you still rode your bike everywhere. But I, I do think the mind of the comedy writer or writers in general, it's like when you left when you are left to your own imagination, when you sort of have to create your own fun. Oh yeah. And all you have is a bicycle and your imagination. Yeah, no problem. And question. it sounds like very much
1: That's what it was. And my and my window to the world and my brothers, and we were both funny and liked funny was uh, TV shows. Yeah. So, you know, the Danny Thomas show and uh, the Jackie Gleason and all the honeymooners, all that kind of stuff. That was our window to the world. And that was all New York. So that was my idea forever. I'm going to New York and I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to be like Danny Thomas. I'm going right. to come in and yell and be funny
0: and so, be married to a hot redhead <laughs> yeah because that's what happens you yeah. can look like Danny Thomas but still get a hot redhead yeah
1: and it's odd that in you know later in my life I worked with Danny Thomas and his son and all that so it's you know just such a weird thing but you know you you talk about how how do these things happen and you only know when you look back you know the breadcrumbs that left him. but um, you know it was the TV shows that we were compulsive about and then I got a job as an usher in the one movie theater in town the Florida Theater and I clearly remember this is where really the idea kind of sunk in because I would have to stand in the back of the theater as the usher, break up people having sex with a yeah. flashlight. Yeah, you wouldn't and do I, that now. You know, I had the hat like this <laughs> and the epaulets and it'd be like you'd flash the light. But, you know, I would stand. I, I, the guy who owned the theater made me stand the entire time that the movie was running. Sometimes there'd be nobody there. And you'd I'd have still to Still stand. stand there. Yeah. So I would watch 2001 30 times. It, which movie did you see the most? Uh, like the, I don't know, 2001, The Graduate. It was during that my, time.
0: My brother saw The Graduate. He was a movie usher. And he saw it like like 460 times Me too. or something. I, I did too. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, the idea popped into my head as I'm watching it. After you watch it 50 times, right. it's like, I'm not really that interested anymore. But you start examining it. And I always kind of imagine myself, I never imagine myself on screen, not right. an actor. But, you know, there'd be a Western, and I imagine that the crew was where I was standing. So, it's like, it's weird. It's a Western, but there's a guy in a suit over right. here, and there's a normal woman, and the sound. And I said, that would. That's got to be kind of fun. That like you tell people what to do, and it's like you know, right? Cowboys, you tell the Indians attack <laughs> the native people, <laughs> attack. You know, and that that idea kind of got in my head.
0: I think that's where it's starting. But tell a story, the Bob Hope story with your mom, because I just love that story because there's a great payoff to it.
1: Yeah, it was just uh, I, I was the first person to to go to college in my family, and I, I did well in college. And uh, if you do well in college, what you do is you apply to law school which i did and uh and i got in and uh it was the last semester or so or maybe the middle of my senior year and the head of the english department who liked me came up to me and she goes i heard you're going to law school (laughs) and i said yeah i guess i don't know that's what you're supposed to do right she goes i don't know i think you should be a writer I said, yeah, I do too. How do you do that? (laughs) So she said, i tell you what you do. uh, Apply to NYU Film School and apply to USC. Those are the two best film schools. And you can learn how to write script. I said, wow, that sounds really good. She goes, if you get in one of those, go. If not, go to law. And so anyway, I did. I got in. And uh, I wanted to go to NYU because of the New York thing I talked about. So anyway, I come home and I have the horrible uh obligation to tell my parents that my plans have changed and again
0: they are wonderful wonderful people but they're from a generation you know it's a depression generation it's like they worked in a factory this is about survival this is not about laughs. laughs
1: yeah they worked and they were really proud that i was going to law school so anyway we sit down to my father's big italian meal i said i i have an announcement to make i i don't i'm not going to law school um, the silverware goes yeah. down. <laughs> yeah,
0: pasta gets thrown <laughs> against
1: the wall. My father was a mini Schwarzenegger. Yeah. he was like a ripped Navy guy, a good guy, but like no nonsense. Anyway, I said I'm going. They said, "Well, what are you going to do?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, I got accepted to film school. I think I want to be a comedy writer." <laughs>
0: And it is. Now the second bowl of pasta. Now his mother's throwing pasta. It's
1: just the faces drop. And my mother, God lover, says, Look, we'll support you in anything you want to do, but there's something you should know. And I said, What is that? She says, You're not funny. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, the whole quote was You're not funny. Bob Hope is funny. That's funny. A guy comes up and he tells jokes about the Viet Cong. You don't do that. You guys just make voices and stuff and In tickle each room. other. <laughs> what is that's that? That's not funny. So, anyway, so yeah, so I went. So, God love them that they, you know, supported that. And then many years later, it's a Golden Girls. is my girls. favorite
0: part of the story.
1: It's a Golden Girls, and it's Bob Hope is a guest. Just a funny little
0: moment at the end. Bob, Bob Hope, Hope shows up at the house. Yeah. So, oh, girl. <laughs>
1: well, he kept coming out saying hey how about them golden girls we're like no no they're characters like dorothy and blanche and he he never understood that we had to cut around it anyway uh so i said to my i I said to my parents come out for the taping because i know you guys love you know bob Bob Hope. hope He's
0: funny, yeah. unlike our son. Yeah, you, you idiot.
1: <laughs> so anyway, I figured it was a time that I could finally go, like, see? Uh, so anyway, they came out, and I go to my parents. You have to know my father, who's, like, guileless. Uh, I said to them, hey, listen, after the show, when it's done, stay in these seats. Stay in these seats, and I'll come up and get you, and I'll bring you down. There's a whole way this has to and go. maybe. I'll introduce you to the funny guy bob hope (laughs) so the show the show the show ends and i look up and of course my parents are not in in their seats where where are they i'm looking around i'm looking around and i look down and there is my father talking to bob hope now bob hope is not talking my father is the one that's talking joking and i come up on them and here's what i hear Bob, the next time you're in Vero Beach, do not get a hotel. You'll stay with us at our house. We have one. We have one bathroom, by the way. <laughs> but that was my father. Anyway, I walked up and I go, Mister Hope, will you tell my mother that I'm funny? Yeah, he's funny. And, so, and she went like, eh. so anyway. <laughs>
0: I was as you're talking about your dad too. I'm remembering a day. I'm way off script on this thing. I did all this work on this script. I'm tossing it out. It's good, but one day Barry and I play golf up here in Santa Barbara and his, and his dad had arrived that morning somehow and or maybe the night before. and so we go by Barry's house and I'm going by to say hi to his folks. and his dad is like, like, don't, don't talk, don't talk. turn on the TV, turn on the TV. And he keeps looking at his watch like, okay, we're getting near 220. At 220, we got to look at the TV. Okay, we're going to 220. Look at the TV. (laughs) TV, all of a sudden, 220 comes on. He had literally gotten into town the night before. He shows up. We're in Santa Barbara, everybody. He shows up in a commercial on local TV for Lazy Acres, this vegetable grocery store in town, he had literally gotten to town the night before, and all of a sudden, whoever the owner is, like, "Hey, I'm Lazy Acres. With me is my friend Tony Finero." You can't get lettuce like this in Florida. <laughs> 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 he,
1: yeah, that was him. That was him.
0: Oh my God! Speaking
1: uh, of the Dodgers and him, I was going. I, I applied to NYU Film School. I guess I guess it was that. Anyway, yeah. So he goes, "I, you know, that's going to be a tough get." I think I said I did get in. I don't remember exactly the timing. But anyway, I needed a scholarship for something. Yeah. So he calls up Walter O'Malley. The owner of the Dodgers. Yes. Yeah. Hey, this is Tony Finero. I don't know if you remember me. I made the sign that's at the front of the gate that says this way, because he had a marble company. And he goes, uh, my son, blah, blah, NYU, and and Walter O'Malley. This shows you a different time, too. Yes. Come over. So I do remember going over with my father to Dodgertown. A Cadillac pulls up. Walter O'Malley and Peter O'Malley are in the front, and we get in the back, and we start driving through It's like Dodger- a
0: mob <laughs> conversation. Get in the car.
1: <laughs> we drive through Dodgertown, and it was all small talk, and uh, finally got out, and he said to my father, yeah, he seems like a nice kid, all right. So I, I have somewhere a letter. Walter O'Malley, who didn't know me from Adam, wrote saying, you know, you should take him to...
0: And did give he, him a scholarship or something? Oh, he should give him one. I'm not doing it. <laughs> I don't. I own only own a baseball team. I gave him a ride in the car. He's okay. The father made the sign. <laughs> uh, okay, we're going to talk. We're going to finally get to Kingpin at some point. Uh, just quickly, I'm going to brag for Barry for a second. A couple of times Barry has asked me to read scripts, and I two in particular where I read them and I said to myself. Add three jokes, which is an easy thing to say for any script. Any script. Add three jokes. That's an easy note. Whatever the jokes are, add add three skips and shoot this thing the way it is. The first one I read was Kingpin, which I just read like, oh, my God, this is so crazy and different and funny. Add three jokes and shoot this thing. So, And then the other one was Chuck and Larry, which I read Barry had a TV show and I worked for him this crazy show called The Secret Diary of Desmond Pfeiffer which I don't know if we're going to talk about that experience that was a like insane literally insane experience but I read Chuck and Larry on the we had a car take us to LA one day and I read in the back and again the same thing like add three jokes and shoot this thing but how did you and Mort wrote Kingpin how did that idea even come about
1: it was just i it was late night at home i wanted to write a movie and bowling came on tv late like two in the morning right and what struck me was, it's the dopiest thing in the world. Right. You know, pro bowling. Right. But the guys with the air and they, yeah, got and they the take the it super seriously. Yeah. And they take it. so And seriously. the
0: twelve people in the bowlerama mm-hmm. who are the studio audience go nuts.
1: Dozing off or
0: going nuts. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but they're but they're
1: they're the way they carry themselves is like elite athletes.
0: Yes. they're taking it seriously right. and it is and it's and it is right you know. they weigh 340 pounds but they're elite <laughs> athletes
1: yeah that's a scene out of Kingpin where they walk into the ending where they're in Tahoe and he goes and uh, and uh, Woody Harrelson goes like wow it's kind of intimidating being back in the pros again with all of these elite athletes <laughs> cut to two guys with like sausages falling <laughs> eating big hero sandwich so anyway that it came and I love sports movies I love so I said there it is there's a There's a sports bowling movie. Yeah. And and, and the idea was take it seriously. Don't make fun of it. It's it's serious stuff, you know.
0: That's so fun. Okay, we're going to take a a last break. You're listening to Barry Finero on It's Radio with TV's Tim Stack. And we'll be right back. Please exchange the links.
1: I right, take that.
0: All right, yeah. Thanks. It's a promise of your love forever together, beautiful, okay? for all eternity. Okay. Because it's a circle. Yeah, we heard about the circle. Yes, we're yeah. familiar with shapes. Hey. I now pronounce you husband and husband. You may kiss the husband. Okay, we're back. It's radio with TV. Tim Stack writer Barry Finero is on the show, and that was a clip from Chuck and Larry, where Rob Schneider plays an Asian minister. Yeah,
1: what's which, wrong with that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're looking at me like I did something wrong. Well, you did not cast that movie. I did not. You just wrote the movie and and sent it in. Yeah. So so that one is not on you.
1: I, I got a lot of help from. Uh, who's the star of that? Uh, Adam Sandler. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I got, I, I got, I got help from him. It was, it was sort of a different movie when I wrote it. Not, it was and wasn't. It's really, really odd. But it was uh, Sanderized You know, he he did, it and he put in. You know, it's his style of jokes. It's not necessarily my style. But you know, in the end, it, it's no, it's so a good movie. It's funny.
0: Uh, again, I, I do want to go back to Kingpin at the time because one of the things I remember when I was reading it was. It didn't, at the time, they were making big comedies, and that did not read, that film read to me more like an indie film, almost. But then I think I remember you telling me, like, at one point, were you going to try to get Jack Nicholson to play
1: Roy? uh, You know, his name came up, but who was signed to do it, who loved it, and wanted to do it was Michael Keaton. Ah. So, and then uh, Keaton, who I I thought was a great idea. Uh, to play uh, the Woody Harrelson although in the end I Woody can, was I fantastic. can't even think of
0: anybody but Woody Harrelson No he brought a whole other quality just yeah. a, like a
1: So anyway Keaton Keaton goes I really like it but he wanted it even uh, a little bit more straight even take some of the jokes out we ended up putting more jokes in because the Farrelly brothers yes. you know directed it so it became uh, it was the f- kind of the first of those outrageous comedies do anything say anything you don't like that joke here's another one and it was just big 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 one after another um but Keaton wanted it to be more of a character piece, and the Farrelly Brothers go, "You know, we want we don't know how to do that."
0: Yeah, it's funny. It's almost like he had the opposite note of mine. Mine was add three jokes. His was take away three jokes.
1: Yeah, just make it uh, more real. Which
0: is it, which? Which But was there's not no realness a... in the script. Again, it read sort of like an indie film. This down yeah. and out
1: bowler and and I think it's still there. You know, the bones of it are of that idea. I mean, I I think probably of all the movie scripts I wrote. More of the original, what I wrote, it's like 80% Xeroxed. It really is. You know, the Farrelly brothers brought stuff, and Bill Murray, once you get him, you know what you're signing on for. He's going to do a lot of stuff that he wants to do, and he is hilarious. In fact, uh, in, a, in a lot of uh, Sports Illustrated, I think, it's one of the best uh, sports movies of all time, and it's because of Bill, is what they're saying. He's one of the great villains in sports movies. And it stuff. really
0: is. And crazy. he is he's hilarious. And the hair, which yeah. you had written in the script, yeah. and it, how they manage the... That whatever it was, yeah, it
1: was engineering yes. feat to get that hair going. But anyway, yeah, it was. Uh, I, 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 it's one of the things that I've done that I could still watch that I really, really like.
0: Um, and then I do want to talk about because I, I re- worked for Barry and wrote on the show, um, the Secret Diary of Desmond Pfeiffer, which was a show that Barry and Moore created at the time. If people are fans of, it, I loved it because it reminded me of the English show black adder which is rowan atkinson as this officious butler to hugh Laurie's idiot prince and season three of black adder is one of the great funny yep. you know they they jumped around time zones on that show but season three is when they're when the prince is hugh Laurie is the prince and and and, and black adder has this knucklehead sidekick and so what I think you were trying to do at the time was make an American version of that. And again, Adder was jumping around time zones. So again, I, I'm, I'm telling you your own show, but it was a to me a very clever version of like almost like Benson in a way where Abraham Lincoln is the president and the actor Chai McBride plays his butler with an idiot sidekick. And it was just funny and, and just kind of stupid.
1: We had a deal at Paramount, and uh, they were starting the UPN, United Paramount Network. Remember that, everyone? Yeah. So anyway, because they're paying us, they said, can you guys come up with something, help us out at UPN? So we went over. Dean Valentine was the president, and he goes, listen, just do something, really. We, we have to make some noise.
0: Yeah, they made uh, noise
1: all right. So, uh, so we came in with a black adderish thing, and uh, it was a l- little bit of a take on the Clinton White House. We yes. had it was Lincoln. It was during the Civil War. It was we,
0: not Abe. It was like this guy. He was partied. More, It was more Bill Clinton.
1: Yeah, and he was addicted to telegraph sex, and <laughs> right. his his wife was a pain, and yeah, you know, it was all this. It was really, really outlandish, and. Really funny. We had a great
0: time. Super funny. We had a really great fun room. We laughed so much. So anyway, it premieres. And
1: And then all of a sudden it got on the air. (laughs) Holy hell broke loose. Um, The African-American community, you know, leaders, they felt that you are not allowed to do. Listen, I understand now in retrospect. uh, You you can't do anything about the Civil War because that's a time that's very painful in history and all that. We were just looking to make it funny. Right. So it, it was both a show that was maligned and it was picked Newsweek, when that was a magazine that people read, was the number, you know, we pick it as the best show of the year. Right. right. But uh, the same day that came out, I got home and I saw um, uh, Reverend Al Sharpton. Yeah. Late night at T- on TV. Saying Talking about your show. How racist I was <laughs> walking into my home. So I, in the end, I, I went to uh, Paramount and said, uh, listen, if we're – it wasn't meant that way, you know. That I we have black producers, and the head of the network
0: was and Af- our American actor Chai McBride loved the show. Who is
1: the greatest guy yes. ever? He was a wonderful guy to work with. Who loved the show. He, you know, he got it. it was satire, and uh, anyway, so we said, like, listen, if it's if it's causing people a headache, just shut it down. But there were protests around uh, Paramount was, lot. You couldn't get. You it would in. drive
0: into the Paramount lot, and there were protests, and. Um, I remember Mort one day came in and there was there was a, a black Muslim on one side. and again, I, I, I love those guys. Yeah. like I'm hundred percent for all that stuff, but you don't want to be caught in the middle of like any kind of a media storm. If you are in, you are, unless you're Trump who can handle it, yep. it doesn't even phase him, you do not want to be... Who knew it. you could handle it that way?
1: <laughs> I, I had no idea. It was, I, I know if you remember the novel Bonfire of the Vanities. Yes. It was sort of like that. It was something that somebody sort of, one person had a problem, and then it became a thing that you could, right. you know, and it just snowballed and snowballed. And,
0: and the quicker the show got off, then suddenly it's just like, okay, we're done, moving on. No, Nobody th- talked about it. Yeah. Anymore. It was just over.
1: But it was... Uh, it was it was a lot of fun. It was just a crazy, crazy uh, show. And it was only meant to entertain. So he wanted to make noise, and we made noise. We shut
0: down Paramount. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just so crazy when, you, when you're when you on a job in the comedy world, and you're driving to work, and there are hundreds of people with signs and protests outside the gate. And on one side, I was saying they're like the black Muslims, and then just the regular African-American community. And, and somehow— Mort, your partner got a picture taken with, but he—they didn't know who he was. Yeah. But he was like a thumbs up picture out front. It was just yeah. nobody could believe, like within seconds, how something like that can spread. It's a yeah. scary thing.
1: Yeah, it's it, it was scary. And um, you know, ninety people were watching UPN at the time. At nobody the time, cared. Nobody, nobody cared about. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: The only other, the only other weird, like. Media stormed was when Phil Hartman died. It was yeah. just like suddenly, like, you're getting calls because, you know, I knew him. I'm getting calls from ABC News. Like, how do you – first of all, how did you get my number? This is before the internet. They're calling my home phone. Oh, they know everything.
1: Not that you didn't sort of predict something <laughs> kooky was going to happen there.
0: Anyway. Yeah, yes. We'll, get past, was, we'll go past. <laughs> uh, that's a different uh, topic. Yep. Um, and and then so the other thing I did want to talk well, – that kind of bleeds into Desmond Pfeiffer. But I do – and we're sort of talking about it – is the idea of politically incorrect jokes and golden girls having watched all these episodes again it's a different time part of it's a weird thing and i know you and i have talked about it and we sort of talked about it just now is that is that recognition of like yeah things had to change on the other hand it, don't change too much yeah that, that you can't make fun of you can't make fun of things Yeah,
1: and I think really good comedy, you have to walk uh, the high rope. You know, I think in order for it to... To really um, uh, uh, be something different and engage people and uh, all those, you, you really have to go out there and be willing to re- take a swing and really miss. So, I, you know, I know a lot of stand-up comics of friends of mine. Well, they won't appear on college campuses anymore because it's just, uh, you know, it's been driven into everybody's head that, you know, be outraged if he says X.
0: Anything, yes.
1: And, uh, you know, and it really hurts comedy because comedy is about, you know, being outrageous, saying the wrong thing. Yes. you know you have to do it. You can't just yell whatever. Right. But um, no, there should be some cleverness. Yeah, to it. Yeah, there, there's that. But uh, in in order for comedy to really uh, make you sail, uh, you have to go for it, and and you can't do it now. You really no. Can't I do mean,
0: it. I, I really think it's in. Well, there's this, no comedies. That's the other thing I wanted to talk about was a film like Kingpin, where people went to the to a theater. And they sat in a movie theater and laughed hilariously together. And it And it's everybody infectious.
1: lived to, builds builds to tell the Yeah,
0: everybody and, lo- survived and it, it. It's just a wonderful experience that I don't know if that. I don't know, I did read The Fairly Brothers are going to make an R rated comedy. Great. It's like the idea of going to a theater and laughing with other people. I don't know if we're going to see it again.
1: I, I don't know. A blazing. T- I mean, there's. Look at Blazing Saddles, one of the great comedies, of classics of all time. You
0: couldn't say I don't any think of that Mel said. Brooks could do no. anything. He no. wouldn't have a career no. when you look at the producers. The producers, yeah, no. Yeah. no I mean no. Uh, Nazi musical. Uh, I know, mean, people
1: are li- living to be you know outraged and upset and all that instead of you know it's it's you're making fun of something to bring it out in the light and the air and all that kind of stuff. And if you can't do that, what happens? Well, they're not making comedies anymore. There's some on there's some on streaming, but I don't know. I don't think they're going for the laugh. They're certainly on aren't in theaters.
0: No, they're not. Although I'll take this opportunity to uh, you written something. (laughs) (laughs) I have I've been one of the writers on a funny streaming show called Sprung. I was going to plug that before I left. We got a little time, right, Uh, Richard got a minute or so. So uh yeah, if you haven't seen Sprung yet, get out see there, it. see it. It's uh 10 minute. I'm in episode 3, I wear a wig that uh kind of looks like a woodchuck. Sounds if, funny? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Then you see my shoulder a lot when I interview Kate Walsh. I thought my shoulder was fantastic. Yeah. Um, I,
1: like, I like her. I like
0: she's really funny and really, really super nice. Oh, is my so, God. Is she nice? Really? really. Oh, that's Ugh, nice. That happen- great to hear. Something happened on the set where it's just like uh, any other actress who's a big deal yeah. is going to throw like heads are going to roll and she could not have been awesome. cooler. That's great to hear. Oh, my God. I like this her This prop lot. guy. Screw- like, you can't believe how much he screwed up about something. And you would have thought she just, he's going to be fired and she couldn't have been cooler. That's great. But watch Sprung. It's on a channel called Freebie, which is not very easy to find. That's why it's free. So uh, it is free. Or you can go through Amazon and uh, type in the word Sprung and it'll take you there. But I I think it's a a funny, funny show. Um, And then lastly, the only other thing I wanted to sort of go out on was you told me that Lucille Ball used to come to tapings of the Golden Girls. Yeah. Yeah. And that there are episodes, you can find them, where you, at the, sort of the tail end of a big laugh, you hear, ah! Well,
1: she, it was just so bizarre. It, uh, we knew that she was coming. She was thinking about going back to TV, and she wanted to see if it had changed uh, from when the time that she invented it. Yes. Because she did invent it. Yes. The four cameras and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so she would come. And they would have her in the front row,
0: and there would be the, the scene. And, and the studio be... audience knew could see her. Yeah. They yeah. must have gone berserk. Uh,
1: yeah, when she walked in. But it yeah. was all very quiet and stuff like that. Oh, okay. But she was just there to see, like, how we were doing it. And, uh, and it was so funny, because we're sitting in the booth, and there would be the joke, and you'd hear the audience, ah, and they would die off.
0: And then you would, ah! <laughs> For whatever reason, was, do you think that was to let people know she was there? I thought it, Lucy like, was here, like I'm gonna,
1: I, I want here. you people who are doing the show to know Lucy <laughs> says it's good. I think it was something like that.
0: Yeah, and then she—you could never get her to come on the show.
1: No, nah, she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't do it. She, she was an interesting person, complicated.
0: Oh, that documentary Amy Poehler made is just yeah, fantastic. Yeah. It's so good. Um, okay, we are done here. On I have more episode. stories. Part, <laughs> stay tuned for part two with Barry Finero. Actually, we should do that because this is really good. Um, at least in my opinion. <laughs> what well, do I well, know? Who cares? Um, we liked it. Um, Jeremiah Alexis. Speaking of Jeremiah. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Jeremiah. Thanks, Ryan. TV's Tim Stack is part of the Jeremiah Show here, and he's a wonderful producer. And and now we're talking about doing some TV, which I won't announce until till it's done. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you to him. Thank you to Dr. D, Richard Dugan, the engineer. And uh, Thanks, Dr. Dugan. And we'll see you next time on It's Radio.
1: As always, a big thanks to Dr. D for making our voices come alive on the airwaves. And to our station manager, Les Carroll, for letting us on the air at all.
0: Be sure to check out our very own Richard Dugan, a.k.a. Dr. D, Peabody Award-nominated radio show, Tell Me Your Story, every Sunday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Listeners, we appreciate you and want to hear from
1: you. Please send us your ideas at jeremiah at JeremiahShow.com or on Messenger, on Facebook, or Instagram. The show is produced by executive producer Jeremiah Higgins and sound and producer engineer Richard Dr. D. Dugan. And me, your announcer, Tony Kelly.